Welcome to Lessons from Earth School, a podcast where we deep dive into real stories of healing and transformation. Stories that resonate with the depths of your soul, that give you a new perspective, and that bring you a feeling of being less alone in the world. Come for the wisdom, stay for the laughs, and leave transformed. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Lessons from Earth School podcast. This episode is going to be a little bit different to the other episodes. I'm basically going to talk about a few topics that are close to my heart and things that basically I've learned along the way in my travels and things that I've observed in the world and collected data about, thought about, and come up with some potential solutions or areas for potential solutions around. So the topics I'm going to be talking about today are going to include crime, domestic violence, online bullying, and online pedophilia. So obviously these are very heavy topics, so if this is something that's triggering to you or that you don't want to hear about, um, this is probably not the podcast episode for you. But basically, these are things that I've either experienced or dealt with in the course of my working career. And I've dealt with them so many times that I've seen these patterns emerge. I've seen the common denominators and the bottom line to a lot of these issues in society and basically thought about how we could do something about them. And I think with every issue, we need to tackle it in a holistic way. There's no kind of one thing that's going to fix it. We have to look at it from all different angles and deal with it at all levels. So this podcast episode is basically a collection of the various things I've experienced and dealt with in my life and some potential solutions of how we can make the world a better place. So I'm going to start by talking about the subject of crime and why crime happens, why people commit crimes and what we can do as a society to combat that issue. If you hear some rain or thunder or rumbling in the background, it's because it's currently raining, there's a bit of a storm happening, so I thought it was perfect weather to come record a podcast episode. So with respect to crime, Fundamentally, I believe that crime is driven by the subconscious mind. So I don't believe that people wake up in the morning, consciously decide to, for example, take a bunch of meth and then go on a crime spree. I believe that the source of the drive to commit crimes is far deeper than our conscious minds. One thing that I experienced when I was young was one of my friends taught me how to steal and it was like 
stupid shit. Um, and yeah, we would just go around and steal shit. And it was just like a bit of, like, it just felt like the right thing to do. Like it didn't feel weird or wrong or bad or anything. And the context to that was about a year, maybe around a year before all that happened, I had been, I was living with my mother. I had been saving up all my money to buy some nice things for myself. I was like 13 at the time, 12, 13. I was very young. I saved up all my money over a long period of time and went to the shops and bought the things that I desired to buy. So these things were like, you know, little lip glosses, little eyeshadow palettes, um, a nail polish, things like that, like, you know, typical things that a 13 year old girl would like. And basically I bought this like box to put them in. And I was so excited. I would kind of get this like epic feeling of satisfaction and happiness. Anytime I went to sit down to that box and get like a lip gloss out, put it on my lips, I finally felt good for like the first time in my life. Um, Cause a bit of background about me, I have had acne, like really severe acne from the time I was about 10 years old. I went through puberty at quite a young age and basically experienced a lot of the symptoms of puberty from the time I was about 10 years old. And so by the time I was 13, I'd been dealing with this issue for quite a while. I'd already been bullied for a couple of years relating to my appearance. Um, people would pick on me at school for being ugly and I didn't have any friends as a result. So, um, in the context of that, this box of things was like the one stop ticket to self-esteem. And one day I came home, opened the box and everything in the box was gone. My mum had thrown the entire contents of the box in the bin because I think like looking back at it now, it probably triggered her abandonment issues and she saw it as basically me growing up and eventually not needing her anymore. And she was obviously very triggered by this box of lip gloss and things and threw it out. And I like broke down. This was probably my first like epic breakdown crying fit. I cried so hard I could not breathe. I was like crying so hard my whole body hurt. It just felt like she had basically like thrown my pretty much whole identity and self-esteem in the bin. And one thing I kind of felt after that was like, you know, oh, you'll pay for this. And I think the feeling of revenge kind of comes from this subconscious understanding of the law of karma that what, you know, every cause has a 
corresponding result and it's like we want to rebalance the scales we when something is taken from us we feel it's okay to take from others because it rebalances the things and one thing i read and i can't remember where i read it now but i read it a few years ago and it was that children in particular young people who steal are essentially trying to steal back their childhoods because their childhoods were taken from them and so the subconscious mind creates this belief that oh it's okay for to take from people because someone took from me and because someone took from me I can take from others and the reason that this is really important is because when anything is living or a creature of the subconscious mind, we need to go to the level of the subconscious mind to change it. And these beliefs that sit in the subconscious mind, this is what drives impulsive behavior because there's a big difference between behavior that is rationally considered, thought through, you know, write a pros and cons list and then make a decision. And on the other hand, it's quite a different thing to get an urge and then act on it. Those urges come from beliefs in our subconscious mind. So that's important because I believe the vast majority of crime, probably like 95%, is as a result of something that lives in the subconscious mind of the person who commits a crime. And that correlates to the understanding that about 95% of our decisions and our lives are dictated by the subconscious mind. So things like addictions, impulsive behavior, violence, all of that is as a result of something that lives in our unconscious, in our subconscious. And we don't know it's there until something triggers it and it pops up. So we've all seen someone who kind of overreacts to something seemingly benign. It's obviously triggered some deep part of them and has resulted in an action that is disproportionate to the cause. That is all stuff driven by the subconscious mind. And I believe that crime sits in that category. So it's not particularly helpful to be telling people that something is bad and wrong to do. They already know that. It's the fact that there's something in their subconscious that is so powerful that it overrides that instinct. Because the greatest instinct that humans have is the instinct to survive. And through various things that happen in our lives, that instinct is fulfilled by certain things. So basically, we try and make sense of the world as children to try and work out how best we can ensure our survival. And the issue is that we're doing this from the ages primarily of zero to seven and less so zero to 12. So basically, from the ages of zero to 12, that's when our brain waves are in a theta or alpha brainwave state where our subconscious mind is fully open and receptive. And it's essentially recording the information 
in our world, analyzing it through a not very good filter, and then creating thoughts, patterns, and beliefs and meaning about the world. And that's how we essentially learn to survive. So if, for example, a child goes up to their parent asking for a toy or asking for something and their dad yells at them, if this happens, say, one, two or three times, the child will process that information of their dad yelling at them when they ask for a need to be met or ask for a toy or whatever as it is not okay for me to speak my needs. Things like men are dangerous. I shouldn't speak up when I want something. And other people's feelings are more important than my needs. And I should tiptoe around other people's feelings to make sure I survive. Because as children, we are dependent on our parents or our caregivers to survive. So we will do whatever it is, including abandoning ourselves, our own wants, desires and needs in order to ensure that survival and ensure that allegiance with our parents remains. So because we prioritize that over everything else, we end up with these really funky things, beliefs, thoughts in our subconscious mind that then drive our behavior later in life. That's how we end up with people pleasers. That's why we end up with self-abandonment, codependency, and all these various issues. It's because we've tried to make sense of the world before our critical faculty has come online. So our prefrontal cortex, the rational decision-making part of our brain, only starts to come online around the age of 12. That's about the time where it starts to be formed. And so before that, we're kind of running around a little bit like headless chickens. We're trying to make sense of the world without the part of our brain that's actually going to help us make sense of the world. We're really living from a more primal part of ourselves in that time. And because our conscious mind only dictates about 5% of our lives, most of the time we are reenacting what is in our subconscious minds. And so that's also what happens when someone, for example, grows up in a household where there's a lot of domestic violence. One, that becomes normalized. Two, that becomes associated what home feels like. Three, that becomes associated with what love feels like. And four, that's what your nervous system basically regulates to and obviously it is dysregulated but that's what your nervous system thinks is safe because again when we're in that really early time of our lives we're just trying to ensure our survival so if we experience something even though it was crappy our brain will register it as we survived that and the brain is more afraid of the unknown than it is of the known, even if the known wasn't that great. That is why it is so, so hard to break cycles of abuse, to stop entertaining people that are violent towards you, if that's all you've ever known. And that's why it's so hard to break cycles is because we're trying to use often 
the 5% of our brain to try and change the rest. And that never works. It only either works for a short time or the results are very short lived. So we need to dive deeper in order to create solutions that are lasting and long term and permanent. So often the people that end up as perpetrators in the criminal justice system are people that either grew up in a violent household or their parents were drug addicts or committed crimes. All of this usually is either learnt behaviour or some form of coping mechanism to some other behaviour. For example, if your parents were drug addicts, you might not be addicted to drugs, but you might have addictions to other things like impulsive behavior, such as gambling, things like that. So we're all kind of these flawed humans trying to do the best when we're working with basically brain infrastructure that is conditioned to work against us particularly when what we've learned and what is sitting in there is destructive and unhelpful. And sadly, often the people that start committing crimes end up coming back before the courts again and again and again, whether it's for same, similar or different crimes, it's all stemming from the same sort of place. And so the solution is to start doing the deep, transformative work of healing the subconscious mind and rewiring it making sure that we acknowledge what's in there find out what's in there and then do the work to reprogram it to more positive and helpful life-affirming thoughts and this takes time and it takes patience and it takes resources And this is something that I have been fortunate enough to do in my life. But it's not something that everyone has been able to have access to. And also the knowledge about in terms of what we can actually do to help ourselves and other people. Often these people that are committing crimes have various mental health issues and things like that going on. And... Honestly, a lot of the times it's surprising that they haven't done anything worse. Like a lot of people that do pretty bad things have had such significantly atrocious pasts that it's almost impressive that they haven't done anything worse. And that's never to say that committing any form of crime is okay, particularly those that impact other people. But without knowing the real reasons why this happens we can't really start addressing the issue and start taking steps to try and limit it and ultimately make it stop so the other thing that really relates to this is the issue of domestic violence and something that i've really noticed is that the perpetrators of domestic violence often are so badly resourced in terms of their own emotional and mental ability to regulate themselves that that feels like the only option to them 
And obviously it's not, but when that's the only thing in your brain, then that is what happens. And the experiences that I've personally had of people who've committed domestic violence against me have been, my observations of them have been that they exhibit a lot of the features of narcissistic personality disorder. And I don't like using that term very often, but it's important when we're actually trying to find the issue to, to name things as accurately as possible. And the reason why I'm bringing this up is because I want to talk about it in more detail. So my experience of people with NPD is that they have found themselves in a world where they don't feel worthy of being in. So often these people have achieved a lot, but they feel like their life is at a level 10 and their self-worth or self-image is at a level three. And so to bridge that gap, they construct this false facade, this external facade to show to the world, usually full of like grandiose behavior and gestures and Perhaps, you know, spending lots of money on designer clothes or cars or whatever to create this image that matches the level 10 of their life. So that's why this disorder can often be found in very high achieving and successful people. And I actually have a lot of compassion for people with this disorder because from my experience, all of them have constructed this basically personality to, to basically protect their inner child who is absolutely terrified of everyone finding out that they're not worthy and that they don't belong and that they're actually not good enough despite the false bravado on the outside. So my experience of my perception of these people is that they feel deeply inadequate. They are very, very much hurting on the inside. They have a lot of unresolved, unprocessed childhood trauma a lot of the time. And basically their coping mechanisms have been exhausted such that they cannot find another mechanism to get by in their life and survive other than to construct this false persona. And the issue with the false persona is that it is very fragile because it's false. And so it takes a lot of time and effort and emotional energy to keep it up. And basically, the longer you keep it up, the more it kind of pervades every cell of your being. And the more you kind of get to this point where you forget what part of you is real and what part of you is fake. Like it just all morphs into one and you just essentially, for the lack of a better phrase that comes to mind at the moment, you become the monster. You become the version of you that exists in your head that you constructed to try and get by in life. And that's a very sad thing because I think when we peel back the layers of people with this disorder, 
they it's it's like something happened in their childhood that they couldn't cope with they pushed it down and so because they're used to pushing it down they've pushed everything else down and so they're kind of sitting on this giant mound of issues and instead of looking at it because it's too painful to look at they just put up this kind of sign or shop front or facade that says nothing to see here folks everything's all good and I'm fabulous please move along and yeah I really feel for them and I think that one of the solutions um, to the issue of domestic violence is working with perpetrators and in a very compassionate manner of you know sitting them down and helping them actually process their issues and ultimately the issue is that a lot of people don't want to process their issues because it feels too painful to look at it's kind of like that age-old thing where everything looks bigger and harder before you actually do it but once you actually start it you know and you keep going looking back at it it wasn't that big um and i know this because i kind of pushed down and shoved all my issues into a kitchen cupboard managed to just get the handle shut and then i feel like if i was to open the door like 2000 tons of cutlery and plates and crockery would just fall out and engulf me and cover me in this 40 meter high pile of shit that i haven't dealt with in my life yet so I understand because I've been there, so I do have compassion for people who aren't ready for that kind of thing. It's because you think it's going to swallow you whole. You think it's going to be a bottomless pit that you can never get out of. You think it's going to be this insurmountable thing, but it is so surmountable. It's, I mean, you've already survived the thing. All you're dealing now is with emotions, but people are so afraid of emotions and Yes, it's not great and it's not sexy and it's not fun to sit down and cry through a whole box of tissues. But, oh my gosh, the amount of pain and trauma and everything that gets released in that that crying session is just so liberating. It's just so freeing. It just makes you feel like a different person and you become different in the world as a result of processing your emotions because the issue is is that these negative unhelpful um, destructive beliefs and thoughts and patterns are held in place by the emotional infrastructure of the emotions that you refuse to feel about the events that created those things so sometimes we have to go back and look at the really painful things that have happened and like cry for our younger selves be like yeah that was really shit I shouldn't have experienced that that shouldn't have happened to me but it did and now I'm here and I can comfort my you know inner child version of me and we can move forward together in a way that actually integrates that pain and integrates that trauma by turning it into wisdom And when we look at something, pick it apart, examine all the wisdom and all the lessons that we're meant to, that we could possibly gain from that shitty experience, then the emotional charge attached to that just goes. It just goes because we've gained 
like the nuggets of gold that we needed to from that thing and then the rest is like useless so our bodies our systems our nervous systems are more comforted in letting it go because we've taken what we needed because sometimes our nervous systems and our brains are hanging on to our old traumas because they th it thinks that it's helping it thinks that it's helpful to know that oh if i talk to a man he's going to hit me and yes that has happened for some people but it doesn't mean it's true in all cases and it doesn't mean that it's a belief that serves us for the rest of our lives so maybe in that situation we can go back and look that that shouldn't happen um, comfort that version of you cry for them if you want to feel the rage feel the emotions and just let it out in a really healthy way like punch a pillow or just scream into the void or you know go to a boxing class or go to go exercise or run or do something to discharge that excess energy and then once you've done that you can kind of look at well what what should I have learned from that what is the helpful lesson maybe the helpful lesson was just that that person was dangerous and that could still be true to this very day but it doesn't mean that all men are dangerous or you should never ask for a need to be met or you shouldn't approach people for help, etc. I hope this is starting to make sense in terms of what is helpful, what is not. And that's the thing. We can hold on to the things that help us. And when we start holding on to the things that actually help us, not these really generalized umbrella beliefs of oh, everyone's bad, everyone's out to get me, um, people always want to steal from me or take from me or whatever. Those are very primitive beliefs that we usually generate as children because we're trying to make sense of the world in a short amount of time. So we use generalities and we generalize. So we take the one specific situation and we paint the whole world with it. We assume everybody's like that, everything's like that, Every similar situation will end in the similar sort of situation. So we've got to avoid all men or we've got to avoid all women. And that just starts to become problematic when we get to a stage in our lives where we start looking for partnership. We start looking for, we start looking to the people that we demonize in our minds. And the issue is that sometimes we kind of, we find what we look for. And so if we're always, you know, looking for subconsciously looking for someone that represents our parents or our parents dynamic, then sometimes we're not going to have the best time if that wasn't a great dynamic. So we just have to get really, really conscious about what's showing up in our lives and where it's coming from. And when we start doing that, we can start unpacking the layers and we can start getting to the bottom of what we actually believe around certain things and we can go back and analyze what's going to be helpful and what's not and when we find the beliefs that are unhelpful we go back to where we picked that up from we dismantle it work out what's helpful and leave the rest and we can you know imagine us giving that back to the person that gave us that belief or whatever it is and just yeah just that's how we kind of integrate the trauma and integrate the lessons and once we do that 
the lesson has nothing to do the pain the trauma has nothing to do and it just goes because there's no emotional charge left holding it there because you've come to terms with what's happened and you don't have to like it uh, this was something that was really difficult for me was to you know someone said in order to fully love yourself you have to love the things that have happened to you but I think we can just accept that they happened and kind of again take what we need from them and leave the rest and then move on because if we keep reliving our past we will keep reliving our past and that is often not really what we want our future to look like and so I think this is the case in all of these areas where people are still engaging in these impulsive behaviors that they're not really thinking through on a conscious level when they're doing it and it's the same kind of thing for addictions we turn to the addiction to numb the pain of what we don't want to feel and so often the addiction is kind of the false issue like it's the issue hiding the actual issue it's kind of like uh we've got this really painful thing so let's put an addiction on top of it so we can all try and focus on that and everybody focuses on the addiction but when we heal the trauma that led to the addiction the addiction has no work to do it's not serving a purpose anymore there's nothing to numb from and obviously there's nuances when it comes to chemical dependencies and things like that but it's really instead of focusing all our time and effort on fighting the addiction we really need to heal the trauma underlying it and that which is what caused the addiction in the first place and so now I want to turn to some of the things that happen online such as bullying and pedophilia and things like that so I'm not going to go into detail on that at all um, but that's just to say a lot of the people that commit crimes against children are people who had crimes committed against them as children and again sometimes it lives in the subconscious for decades and decades and decades and comes back at a time where the subconscious really becomes active again and that's sometimes when you know we have more time on our hands so around retirement or towards the end of your life or when you know the children leave home and you find yourself with more time on your hands so a lot of the things in our subconscious resurface around those times the times when we can actually take a rest because when we're busy and we're filling up all our days with stuff to do we don't have time to think about our stuff and I think that's why a lot of people do keep themselves busy and then they like to complain about how busy they are but they're doing it on purpose because they're just running from this themselves and so coming into this age of Aquarius which is all about using technology and advancements for the betterment of the community and humanity at large what I would love to see is the use of tools like AI and things like that to basically help stop 
online bullying and pedophilia and things like that because obviously we need to stop it and then we have to kind of have to help the people that are doing it because we need to help them stop and the only way they're going to stop is for it to essentially stop meeting a need because obviously people are engaging in these behaviors because it meets some unmet need and we all know that bullies are people who are deeply insecure or hate themselves and whatever and that's what they take out on other people they try and bring other people down to the level so I think we really need to focus on these issues in a very holistic way and obviously stop it from happening detect when it's happening um, and then when we deal with people obviously we need to deal with people in a way that deters them from further offending but we actually need to help them heal the underlying issue that caused them to engage in the behavior in the first place and the more I guess obscure or obscene the behavior the more help that these people need and I don't think it's very helpful to further shame people who are already experiencing a lot of shame I think that no one ever heals from a state of shame and I think that's one of the first things that you need to come out of in order to access healing at any level I don't think anyone can do any healing if they're still feeling ashamed and so the first step would be to to deal with that and um, the work of Brene Brown comes to mind and there's a lot of people doing a lot of great work on on shame and how to heal that and I just think that although it's really important to you know punish people appropriately and Make it clear that the community condemns obviously this conduct and particularly conduct that harms another person. Um, I have been victims of many crimes myself and I'm under no false illusion that people should not be punished for um, their actions and people should face the consequences of their actions. And I think we need to do more in terms of actually helping people stop re-offending and recommitting crimes um, by doing better at the rehabilitation stuff, doing better at like the counseling and the psychology and the psychiatry. And we really need to start working with the subconscious mind because that's where all of this lives. That's where all of this comes from. And if we're still kind of tiptoeing in the shallow uh, waters of cognitive behavioral therapy and other modalities that don't deal with the subconscious mind um, with all due respect cognitive behavioral therapy did save my life when I was 11 years old so I'm not certainly not saying that there's no place for that I think it's kind of a both and situation where we need to do that work and we need to be working with people and the community as a whole, like the whole world on a subconscious level and just educating them about how these behaviors come about, why people do what they do, why people end up in the relationships they end up in, why people end up committing the crimes that they commit. 
I believe it is so, so heavily driven by the subconscious mind. And I think that's certainly something that we need to focus on more if we're going to move the needle materially in stopping people committing crimes. So those are my two cents on how we can help, I guess, change the world for the better. I really um, think we need more resources for people in prison. I don't think prison is particularly a helpful place for people to go to get better or do better. I think it is a wake-up call for a lot of people, but for a lot of people it sends them further down into the shame spiral because, you know, it would be hard to feel good about yourself in a place like that. So I think we just need to think a bit broader and think a bit deeper in terms of the resourcing that we send into prisons, that we give to people who are on probation and parole, the people in the community at large, because obviously victims of crime experience trauma as well, and we should be helping them as well. And yeah, I know all of this is going to cost money and cost resources, but it also costs a lot of money if we don't do it and if we keep just sending people to jail and we keep seeing people re-enter the criminal justice system and we keep dealing with the same people about the same things over and over again. Like, obviously everything costs money, but we need to think a bit bigger about how we actually start moving the needle on this issue and the statistics seem to be getting worse and worse and so I think we definitely need to take this more seriously than we have been. So I just wanted to add my thoughts of change and healing and compassion out into the world. Hopefully it helps someone even if it just helps them understand things a bit differently and obviously these are my opinions and my thoughts and so take them with a grain of salt and take what resonates and leave the rest. I'm certainly not the expert on this topic. I just really wanted to share my views on what I think will actually really help moving forward based on what I've personally experienced and seen in my personal and professional life. I've not really heard anyone else talk about this stuff like this before so I just wanted to send my thoughts out into the world in the odd chance that they might help and someone that agrees or that can maybe be in a position to do something might like to do something. Um, obviously I'm open to helping in any way I can so if anyone has any ideas on how we can actually implement some of the things I've spoken about, please get in contact with me. I would love to hear from you. All right. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you didn't, I'll be back next week with the usual programming of the weird and wonderful things in my life and in those people who inspire me. So thanks for tuning in. I'll see you soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of Lessons from Earth School. 
If you loved this episode, please leave a review on Spotify or iTunes and check out the show notes for more information on where to find us. See you in another episode.